everyone, this is Haley Culleton from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Drs. Boon Lim and Melanie Danny from Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. Since autonomic dysfunction is increasingly being recognized as an important feature of long COVID, in this conversation, they discuss and describe the presenting symptoms and diagnostic challenges for patients in their syncope clinic, possible mechanisms, wider research questions, and suggestions for management. Let's jump in. So, Boone, in your practice, could you describe the rationale for beta blockers over avabradine and fluid expanders in post-COVID POTS? And typically, how long should you take? Should a patient take it before weaning off? Okay, so first thing to say is there's no evidence base to suggest any of these management strategies. These all come from the experience with patients with other autostatic intolerance symptoms. That being said, if I look at a trace. And if I see that a patient is hypertensive with COVID, so you remember that in in one of those six panels of slides that I showed, one of them showed persistent hypertension on tilt up. The blood pressure actually went up by 40 to 50 points. That's the kind of patient, together with tachycardia, that's the kind of patient that I would start by giving propanolol 10 to 20 milligrams BD. In most of the other cases where the patient starts off with a low resting blood pressure, let's say 102 over 80, and on head up tilt, they oscillate between, let's say, 85 and 110, then that patient with a low blood pressure state may well have a blood pressure that's further reduced by beta blockers. So the, the beneficial effect, which is the anti-adrenaline effect, may be mitigated by the lowering of blood pressure, which is a direct impact of beta blockade. And in that patient, I might defer to ivabradine. Having said that, beta blockers and ivabradine are not my top choice agents for patients with autonomic dysfunction because I often think of the tachycardia as a responsive tachycardia due to something else, i.e. blood pressure or blood falling down into the lower limbs when you stand up. So if there was a better way, and the better way could be to ensure and nag your patients to drink three liters of water and have more salt and have compression stockings, all the stuff that you talked about, and that improved the tachycardia, that would be the best way. Now, failing that, the other way that we could do, that we could indirectly reduce tachycardia is to start on an agent such as fludrocortisone or a plasma expander or midodrine, which is a alpha agonist that serves to vasoconstrict the peripheral and the splanchnic vessels. And with the principles of treatment here, I would go for at least 6 to 12 weeks of treatment continuously. If you decide that the patient is so unwell and they need drugs because they've done all the conservative strategies and that has not helped, then I would commit them to a, to a three month, six week to three month period of continuous medications and really reassess to see even in that time period whether they need up titration, for example, of the midodrine. And at that time, three months later, I would hope that everything that we would have given them in terms of conservative strategies, the top and the bottom-up, top-down and bottom-up approach would help to mitigate or reduce the sympathetic expression. And at that point, if they're feeling better, I'd be looking to wean down the drug. So the long, so the, the, the kind of short answer is three months, Mel, three months. 
Very good. And then obviously, as we were talking about different ways of working in, in the, in this new climate of interacting with patients and, and talking to them. Um, so the next question, are there subtypes of autonomic dysfunction in long COVID? And are these clusters of symptoms, are there clusters of symptoms associated with different subtypes? And does this affect the outcome? So I think this was partially answered in the talk that that we we still don't know and, and still at the stage of characterizing the, the spectrum of disease. And that was shown in our montage of tilt table data showing different physiological responses. And then some of the case series that we were talking about showing predominance of orthostatic intolerance symptoms without heart rate responses. And then some patients with a pure POTS or pure vasovagal phenotype. So probably too early to say at the moment. And again, this may reflect on under lying risk factors or predisposing factors as well as the fact that they've had COVID. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Apart from saying that the physiology is key here, so what you can see on the traces that we showed really Mm -hmm. tells you a lot about what's happening to the sympathetic nervous system in this patient. So whether or not you hit 30 beats Mm -hmm. a minute or 31 or 29, don't worry about what you call it because if the patients are symptomatic with that oscillatory pattern, then the physiology is very clear. They have this varying yo-yoing sympathetic expression that is causing heart rate and blood pressure to be high and low. And whether you can fit a diagnosis like POTS to that patient, it doesn't matter. The management should be very similar. And now the next question is, could you, given the possible viral associated autoimmune theory, and we talked about the antibody responses, could you comment on therapies such as intravenous immunoglobulin or plasma exchange? So this is quite an interesting narrative to go down. And, you know, I have huge respect for the work that's been done to search for these autoantibodies and and the publications that have demonstrated the presence of this noradrenaline receptor antibodies, for example. Now, in in my humble opinion, and here I don't really have experience bar N equals one, and it wasn't a good experience on a patient who I forced to have IVIG, but with no real impact. I would say that the autonomic nervous system is influenced in too many ways and too multifaceted in its inputs, but also outputs, that it's almost very difficult to pick on one endpoint pathway and say that will be the holy grail cure. So I know that sounds a bit odd and strange given that there is a clear mechanism of autoantibodies, but let me put it to you in a different way. When was the last time you had a common call and what was the thing that you did to heal from the common call? I know when I have stress and I don't sleep for three days running because I'm preparing for a webinar, for example, I get mouth ulcers. And the thing that really cures me is a weekend of good sleep, eight hours, two days in a row. And I feel my antibodies are better. I feel my immunity is better and I feel less inflamed. And we all feel it. We all know it. We all instinctively know what it feels like to be good and not hungover, not lack of sleep, not stress. And yet we don't necessarily talk about it openly to our patients. And so I've started to do more of this because I believe the autoimmunity profile of patients can be enhanced by so many things before you get to IV, Ig, and plasma exchange. And all those things really need to be carefully observed because they are really low-hanging fruit. And if you're going to give IVIG Mm. to somebody who has toxic relationships at home, for example, who's not sleeping or who's stressed because the career is up in flames, 
then are you really helping that patient by treating that end pathway? So it's a very similar thing. And my view and my bias, and I'll, I'll admit I have a bias against beta blockers, midodrine, and everything else that we prescribe in clinic, because if the patient comes to your clinic and says, I only drink tea and Coca-Cola, and I only drink 500 mils of water a day, what are you doing prescribing midodrine and fludrocortisone? You haven't even started at the base level. So I think it's interesting, but I think the patient selection and cohort that we choose to go into this therapy specifically, if we want to set them up to succeed, should be with the full knowledge that we have taken care of every other factor that can influence immunity. And I don't think we understand fully what those factors are yet, Mel. And just in bullet points, tell us what you would say to your patients to optimize their their general health. And this will actually come on to the, the penultimate question about vaccines. So if you're saying to a patient, how do you, or if a patient says to you, you know, how can I optimize my general health? What's the advice that you would give as their doctor? Sure. And this comes back down to basic lifestyle uh, treatments. And this would be to ensure a good night's sleep, to ensure a wind down before sleep. So mobile phones away from the bedside, no bright light, and and really give yourself uh, a diarized sleeping time so that you're not chasing your email till midnight before you forget, because you need to really have time to calm down. So sleep is one. Hydration is another. Rest and recovery and me time is a third. And then a a good diet and for me personally and here maybe people will take an alternate view but my idea of a good diet is slightly lower carbohydrate low sugar low processed food diet and a diet that doesn't make you feel stodgy with your food and feel unwell after you have a meal so for example for all those of you watching this webinar after lunchtime think of how sleepy you're feeling right now if you're feeling very sleepy then it may be the diet that you just had for lunch that big pasta bake or that chicken sandwich with uh, fries may be a bit too much carb for you because it's causing that splanchnic vasodilatation and for you to feel that feeling of slight low energy levels. And a good diet shouldn't really provoke that kind of response. And in, in my opinion, that's low sugar and low processed food and potentially low carb as well. So that those are the kind of key ingredients to promote immunity. And I guess that the question you're going to ask me next, Mel, would be top tips to prepare for your vaccine, right? And, and the top tips I exactly. would suggest to prepare for your vaccine would be to, to really have in your mind that the vaccine is there to help you and not to harm you. And I know that sounds super strange to say or to hear, but we must intrinsically and autonomically, i.e. subconsciously, believe that the vaccine is there to do good. There are so many patients I see who ask me the very same question, but immediately after saying, can I have the vaccine, they'll say, will it make my X, Y, Z worse? Will it make my toes fall out? Will it make my palpitations come? Will it give me a heart attack? This sensation of fear and anxiety, guess what it triggers? It triggers an autonomic response, which is maladaptive. It triggers the fright or flight sympathetic nervous response. And what you need to go in when you're having a vaccine is a sense of calm and a sense that it will do you good. So that is your primed autonomic subconscious mind to receive the vaccine. Of course, the physical maneuvers that you should be doing would be to sleep very well on the night or two before and certainly on the night or two 
afterwards because the vaccine will trigger an immune response and you should help that immune response present in the correct way or activate in the correct way by not overlaying any anxiety or tension or physical stress. And that means hydrating well, eating well, sleeping well, resting well, feeling well, and thinking well. So that would be my kind of top tips for receiving a vaccine. That's great. Thank you. So you answered the, the question that was about to come. And then just moving on to the, the, the final question that we've got is you're evaluating and diagnosing these patients at the Imperial Syncope Unit, which facilities are available and how should an autonomic testing lab be equipped to support physicians in diagnosing and treating long COVID? So what's become very apparent is that a tilt lab with B2B non-invasive blood pressure traces is incredibly helpful at demonstrating those oscillations that we showed in the panel of eight traces that we've shown. No doubt some of that can be detected by a standard upper arm blood pressure cuff with a patient describing or having the symptoms correlate with a pulse rate increase and a blood pressure decrease on the blood pressure cuff, but you don't always see it. And so If you have a patient who you're suspicious of autonomic dysfunction, as I said right at the beginning, the most discerning question is how do you feel when you stand up or do your symptoms exacerbate when you stand up? And equally, do they resolve when you lie down and put your head down and put your legs on the sofa armrest or against the wall? Because if the answer to those two questions are yes, then it's very likely they have got an orthostatic component driving the symptoms. And then you can take a step further and surmise that that may be an indication of autonomic dysfunction. Now, how do you show it? You show it by means of a tilt table test. Can you show it with a blood pressure cuff? You might be able to, but remember the oscillations? You might not catch it at the right time. And so you might not see such a big delta between lying and standing. And so I think any autonomic lab should really have a tilt table test or a tilt table plus a non-invasive blood pressure cuff. And that is the way that you could gain more clarity on the physiology of the autonomic nervous system as it relates to autostatic challenges. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe. 